listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. Welcome again to Soil Talk. I'm Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. With me today, Mick Godekin, my co-host, our innovation agronomist, as well as Dennis Ranke, our field sales agronomist out of the Sioux City area. We're kind of continuing our discussion today about cover crops. If you you missed our previous discussion, go listen to the uh, previous episode. We kind of went in and talked a little bit about our own experiences, talking about working that cover crop uh, program into our overall system and, and the need to work it in, whether it's nutrients, whether it's moisture, whether it's the herbicides we're using, just the need of making that cover crop fit within our farming system and not just trying to throw something in there without a decent plan and some, some thought ahead. So guys, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the sequestering nutrients uh, side of it. You know, can we tie up nitrogen? Can we tie up uh, phosphorus, you know, in the off season and bring them available to our, our future crops? What's, what's our opportunity there? You know, Tim, you, you talk about nitrogen, and certainly in 2020, we've seen enough drought and severe, severely dry areas that we can actually, hopefully, if we get enough moisture, capture that nitrogen, that nitrate and keep it in the plant and store it until spring. Uh, and, and then when we terminate that crop, have it come back to us. Uh, Phosphorus side, you and I are old. We've, we've been around for a few years, and we were always taught with once phosphorus was in soil, it was there. And we've learned more recently about the, the readily available phosphate that runs off and, and causes some of, the, some of the issues with streams and, and ponds and lakes across the U.S. and, and certainly the Gulf of Mexico. And, uh, that water soluble pea that's that doesn't take a whole lot and if we can pull that up into a plant and rather than it running off with a rainfall event certainly some benefits there yeah that's a i think that's really important because you know the cover crop not only is the root system sequestering that mobile nutrient whether it's phosphorus or nitrogen in the root system and then you know, transporting it up to the above ground plant, but uh, it's also holding the soil there. Um, and a great example of that, at least for this Sioux City area, and and it may, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize that um, because I know it happened in in as far west as Ainsworth and Valentine area. You know, last year we had that rain that came in March, and the ground was still froze. Uh, kind of froze, not maybe 100% froze, but uh, we had all that flooding. Well, I can tell you that the fields that we had cover crops on, it, we felt like we didn't lose any soil. We had that mass there. Uh, we had that that above ground that slowed the water down. Um, if you can slow the water down, it obviously doesn't cut as much as a fast-moving water. So, uh, you know, you're getting kind of a double, you're getting a two-for-one deal. Maybe it would be the way to put that and that the cover crops are sequestering the nutrients below ground, but then they're also stabilizing the soil that you, so you're not losing the nutrients uh, through a wind or a, or, a, or a moisture type erosion process. 
you know, as I was finishing up my master's degree, my final project in the, the last two years of, uh, of my work on my 10-year master's program was uh, tile discharge and loss of nitrogen and phosphorus through tile And like Mick said, that dissolved reactive phosphorus, it's kind of a small piece of overall phosphorus. We've always focused on erosion and said that, you know, if we can keep the soil on the field, we won't lose phosphorus. Well, that's not completely true. This dissolved reactive phosphorus, whether it's coming from the, you know, the breakdown of uh, organic matter on the soil surface, or it's coming from, you know, fertilizer application on the soil surface, that can be an issue, especially in like our lakes and reservoirs and some of these issues we have with blue-green algae, you know, some of our water supplies like up in Ohio and Toledo. The nitrogen is probably one of the key ones as, as we're thinking about cover crop and our ability to grab that nitrogen in the off-season. One of our big challenges, and as I was researching into to this final project for my master's and looking at what other people were doing, when you look at something like CRP, or you're looking at something like a pasture. There's just not a lot of nitrogen loss. I know we don't put, obviously we don't fertilize CRP, but we do fertilize uh, pastures. We normally don't put as much nitrogen on a grass pasture as we do on say corn. But the bigger issue isn't so much the applied nitrogen, it's the fact that there's a plant and crop growing there, you know, nine months out of the year instead of six months out of the year like we've got with corn and even with corn, yeah, it's growing in May and early June, but it's not growing much. There's not much of a plant there. It's need for nitrogen isn't that big. It's not until it hits V8, V10, V14, um, tassel, where it's really taking up a tremendous amount of nitrogen. I think that's one of the things we need to work cover crops in is to lengthen the growing season. when We've got a growing crop out there that's going to actively take up nitrogen, hold it in, or, in an organic form and not allow it to go out, whether it's into the groundwater or whether it's in the surface waters. Any thoughts on that? I know, I know, Mick, when you were working on your master's, I believe you're still working on the transition from horses to uh, tractors down there at Oklahoma State, but <laughs> Absolutely, Tim. You know, you're older than I am, but you took a lot more years to get a master's degree than some of us. Slow learner. Very slow learner you are. Uh, you know, you think about uh, about those dissolved reactive phosphates and, you know, back when in the horse and horse-drawn days, we didn't know about that. So you're kind of the expert since you're more recent graduate than I am, but, <laughs> you know, that term really in the last 10 years, we didn't hear it until the last five to 10 years. And, and it's really become a, a forefront of, of giving the, the growers a, a black eye of sorts. Uh, and it's not our fault. It's the way that, that mother nature works things. And, and it's a challenge that we have to learn to control some of that and, and keep that from the, entering the water system. Well, and, and one thing that and maybe you're, you're, maybe I'm jumping the cart in front of the horse, but, you know, as, as a, a cover crop is one of those plants that um, you can increase your organic matter in a soil by using cover crop because what is, what is organic matter? It's, it's partly decomposed plant and animal tissues or parts or however you want to say it. So, you know, that cover crop uh, can give you some better organic matter in your soil and organic matter gives you more binding sites to bind some of this stuff to so that you don't lose it. So it's not just a one thing does this. It's this one thing affects 
multiple systems in our soil microbial, our soil structure, our soil system. And, uh, you know, this, this is, like I said, you, you nailed it exactly. You know, Mother Nature wants to have something growing out there for nine months. In our part of the world, it's nine months because it does get cold enough that most everything dies in the ground or goes dormant, I should say. But, uh, you know, that, that's another way to, to help with this uh, runoff issue, uh, tile line issue, however, you know, dissolved nutrients in water would probably be the way to say that. Um, because you are increasing your organic matter and there's more ways to bind it to that soil. I mean, you think about what you, that O'Neill, maybe even Neely on West, it gets pretty sandy out there and the organic matter isn't, isn't very good. Isn't, isn't as good as what we're, you know, and, and somebody that lives in Iowa, they can't imagine how you can even grow anything out there in that uh, CEC of a six or or less, you know, we're, we're, got, we're 17s and 20s and 25s, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a way to help improve that. Yeah, when you look at it long term, and I think that's, that's one thing a grower has to go into it with. So Dennis, I think you said it really well. There's a lot of programs out there. NRCS has got some great cost shares um, where my family farms in the, the specific drainage basin, they can have cover crop pretty much flown on for free into standing corn and, and they're big big fans of it down there they're trying to make a reduction in in the nitrogen level in that watershed specifically but it, in a one-time shot cover crops are almost a waste of time the environmental benefits are there but as far as the benefits to the grower goes he's probably going to see a negative and not a positive he, he's not used to it so having to kill it with a burn down he's not going to like that chances are there could be a yield hit especially if he lets it grow a little too long and it happens to be a dry year or you know to be honest with you growers probably need to think a little bit about fertilizing their cover crop if they really want to get good biomass out of it and not negatively impact their cash crop so i like to talk to growers about look it's probably a five-year system change it's going to take you two or three years just to kind of break even with it and another two or three years to build some organic matter, um, build some of that uh, better sto uh, soil aggregation so you can see some of that, you know, break of compaction, more mellow soil. It can probably take about five years for it to really make a significant change into the weed cycling. So if you give up in year one or two, you're probably just wasting your time other than, you know, you, you probably will help sequester some nutrients and maybe, you know, bring some carbon into the system that'll benefit you, but it, it's really a long-term approach. Well, yeah, I mean, you think back to, this is going to date me. I'm going to be pretty close to you, Tim, now. But you start thinking back in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a few guys started started experimenting with no-till. And what did everybody say? Oh, hey, you know, you can't do that. And, and the guys that did it said, well, yeah, my yields went down five bushel when I started no-tilling. But now they've been no-tilling for several, well, I shouldn't say generations, but several decades and the no-till will yield, maybe even out-yield some of the tilled ground now. So, yeah, I, it's a, I mean, you're spot on when you say it's a systems approach. And you, you, as my uncle said, you can't jump in and out of cattle feeding. You got to feed through the good years and you got to feed through the bad years because if you jump out, you're always on the wrong side. Yeah. Now, well said, Dennis. The parallel to no-till is very strong. Uh, 
the the negative yield impact early generally is kind of similar the leveling out as you get into it and then the long-term benefits of better soil structure better water management better water infiltration um, having additional organic matter and, and reaping the benefits of those additional nutrients that will mineralize from that higher organic matter. It's all long-term. You know, Tim, that, that brings us to the point of, of soil health and, and it, we're going to increase that soil health the, with the cover crops. Uh, the microbial population in the soil loves to have something growing on it, and that keeps them active and working. And, you know, just like you, if you aren't actively and working, your brain starts to shut off, your metabolism shuts down. Uh, the soil does the same thing and it gets lazy. And if we keep that microbial population active a little longer through throughout the year, then we keep a more robust microbial population. Yeah. And it's a, it's a two-part system for the microbial life, you know, about half your microbial life out there is oriented around breaking down dead things. Well, when that cover crop dies, you got more dead things out there for it to break down and that's going to convert them from trash laying on the top of the field into eventually humus, but states in between of organic matter that are all beneficial to us. The other side of it, and this is kind of one of the, the pieces we continue to learn is that entire rhizosphere system. And that plant bringing in carbon, that whether it's cover crop or cash crop, bringing in carbon and, it, and the exudates from the roots of the carbon that feeds so much of that uh, soil life web, you know, whether it's the, the smallest bacteria or some of the larger nematodes or whatever, a lot of them have to start out with those sugars that are coming out as root exudates that the, root, that the plant uses to create these symbiotic relationships with the soil microbial life. And we don't completely understand. I know Mick, you've done a lot of work on, you know, some things that we can add trying to maximize that interaction and, and push it in the direction we want to go versus the pathogens that are out there. But there's a lot of opportunity as we work with cover crop to maximize the ability of mother nature to bring sugars in that it's creating out of light and carbon dioxide and pushing them into the soil and maximizing our soil life. You know, uh, you think about that soil and there's millions of microbes in, in a handful of soil and, and we have products out there that are jugs with microbes in it and some have four, some have 24, some have 50 in that jug, but which ones are the right ones in there? And we're still learning about it. You think about us as humans, we've learned a lot over the last 50 years about the gut microbiology that's going on in our, in our human gut and whether you know, whether there's positives and negatives, we're still on that beginning stage of learning on the soils, those learning more about that microbial population and how can we enhance that microbial population. And sometimes we can do it with a jug. Sometimes the consistency doesn't come out of a jug. It comes from managing that soil, uh, whether it's a cover crop, whether it's no-till or a combination thereof. Yeah. You know, we've talked about the environmental impact on the, the nutrient side, and I don't want to go too far into left field here. I know uh, Mick's a little redneck for going too far down this direction, but when you think about 
you know, some of our issues with climate change and some of our issues with greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide out there. Um, that's one of the things cover crop can do is it's taking carbon out of the atmosphere, making it into plant life that can degrade into humus or in the same respect, or I should say, and in the same respect, it's bringing in some of that carbon and exuding it through its roots. And that stuff is, is pretty much, uh, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of it's going to be permanent into the soil where we're basically taking carbon out of the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and putting it into the soil as organic carbon. That balance can really make a difference in climate change. Whether that climate change is driven by human activity or whether it's just a natural phenomena like we've seen through history, um, we can make an impact there with what we're doing on cover crops. And I think it seems like society is interested in rewarding growers for doing the right thing. How long that will take for that to happen, I don't know. Well, and um, to, to kind of to add a point to what both of you have said is, you know, these oxidates and these microbes and these, these flora that are flourishing in the soil are what I'm going to say native to that soil. And as Mick said, you know, yeah, you can buy a jug that's supposed to have this in it or that in it, and there could be four strains, there could be 50 strains, but typically they're not native to this, to the soil that you put it on. And so there's been some studies that I've read that says, are you really benefiting because you're introducing a foreign strain of an oxidate or a, floor, a, a, a microbe or a bacterium in that soil? And it would be like, uh, you know, it'd be like taking this, uh, this white guy and putting him clear down there in Brazil. You know, I might be able to survive, but I'm not going to flourish because I'm not used to the heat and the humidity and those kinds of things. And I really believe that that's, important that you that you promote the natural the uh, localized whatever you want to call it in your soil versus trying to bring something in in a jug now um i i don't i don't have the background that uh, mick does or that you do on that so uh you know i think there's a good discussion to have there about trying to maintain your localized uh, versus bringing something in out of a jug that you don't know it could be from Washington State, could be from Hawaii, could be from Brazil. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a good point, Dennis. Um, I'll play a little de devil's advocate on that. You know, you look at you know native living organisms versus ones that we bring in. Well, we've had some pretty good luck bringing soybeans in here. We've had some pretty good luck bringing in cattle from other areas versus buffalo. We've had pretty good luck bringing in hogs versus razorbacks. So. I think everything's got to be tried in the system to see if it'll work. You know, we get too many people, you know, snake oil salesmen that say, oh, this is, you know, best thing since sliced bread that's going to, you know, give you 50 bushel and everything's going to be great. Well, give it a shot. But you're right, Dennis, the things that are native have got a better chance of working than things we bring in. But, but things we bring in can do better, can do well too. We just have to try them. Yep. Try 10 and hope one works. Well, no, yeah. That's part of Mick's job. He tries 10 and tells us which one works so everybody else doesn't have to. And, and as we said in our podcast before, you know, this is a systems approach. This isn't a one year, one year and uh, wow, look at what I did. This is a five or 10 years down the road. And then you can say, wow, like my soil is, is better. My soil is healthier. My soil has got better structure. It's, 
it's it's a whole it's a it's a system well fellas i think we should wrap it up we pretty much hit the end of our time any last comments for our uh, audience on cover crops hopefully this is good information for them well, the only thing I would like to add is, um, you know, we haven't really talked much about mixes. We did mention a little bit about, you know, some radishes or some turnips, but, um, you know, your local, your local agronomist, uh, field service agronomist from CBA has got the knowledge. And so you might, you might find that you're planting rape or that you're planting field peas or you're planting some other things that's, you know, they add nitrogen, they're, they're a legume. You might plant hairy batch or, or something like that. Um, all those things can be added um, along with whether you're drilling it in or whether you're flying it on with a with an airplane or whatever. But uh, you know, as as Mick has said, latitude makes a huge difference on what you're going to plant. And and uh, I think it's really important that that you that you use your local experts um, for that fine tuning of what what really is going to give you that your desired outcome. Certainly, your your process is going to change based off of off of the goals of that of that of that cover crop too. So keep that in mind, and, and the fact that it is a systems approach, and lean on the local guy. Uh, every one of us is, as an agronomist has made a mistake in the past and made the wrong recommendation, but we all use those as learning points and. And we can use that recommendation or that mistake that we made at, as a learning point to not make that mistake again and maybe figure out exactly what we need to do in, in a certain geography. The last thing I'll add to that, and, and Dennis, you did a good job with it, but uh, every year's different. So the nice thing about mixes is, is you've got multiple options out there. So you're covering a few more bases for different growing conditions. I, I like a mix to have one thing in it that you've been successful with in the past. A lot of times that's cereal rye. You might back that rate off so it's not out competing everything else, but then throw a few other things in there. So if the conditions going forward work for you, great. But if the conditions are lousy and there's not a lot of growth and there's a lot of winter kill, that thing that worked for you in the past, cereal rye, triticale, whatever it is, hairy vetch, great, it's still there. But some of the other things, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Predicting it ahead of time, again, if I could predict the weather, I wouldn't be doing podcasts. I'd be sitting on a beach enjoying my cash. All right, with uh, Dennis Ranke and uh, Mick Godica, it's Tim Mundorf, and thanks for listening to Soil Talk. Thank you for joining us on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CBA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cbacoop.com and you can see our Agronomy Focus blog series every other Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Mick Godekin and Tim Mundorf.